We are in for a great and fun and exciting ride and year here at Covenant. John, in his announcement, talked about the last Sunday in January, the last weekend with the prayer vigil and the celebration. Okay, if he did and you heard it and took it in, that deserves more than like, yes, he mentioned that. <laughs> like, we are debt-free as a congregation. And we're going to be able to creatively engage this city and this world and our neighbors and our own lives in ways that we have not been able to really contemplate before, uh, or at least in the last few years. And that is an unbelievably exciting place to be and an unbelievably exciting moment. And, um, and so I have just a lot of hope and a lot of expectation about what 2019 is going to bring into the life of Covenant Presbyterian Church and into our lives and in the impact how the city might look different because we're here in all kinds of different ways. And so I'm, I'm looking forward to it and excited about it and excited about how this series that we've started of journeying through the book of Luke really looking at what it means to follow Jesus, where we live, work, and play, as our vision statement is, um, how that can continue to mold and shape us uh, as men and women who are trying to figure out this life of faith and trying to figure out what the hope and the abundance is and the peace is that Jesus keeps telling us that life is about. And so it's going to be a fun, fun ride that we're going to have this year, and, um, and I'm looking forward to it, and I'm grateful to be on it with you. Uh, the, the new year is a time when we think about uh, the year that was passed, we think about decisions we made and things that we want to do different, we think about school, we think about work and the year ahead, we think about family and relationships, and we anticipate how, what we want to pursue and how we want to pursue it. The way that that optimism sort of comes into being for a lot of us, we try to capture that optimism in the new year by making New Year's resolutions. Uh, statistically, most of you have made New Year's resolutions and already broken them. So congratulations. Even though this year you really meant it. I really meant it this year. But it, it, if you haven't, allow me to be the, the, the dark angel of death that comes in. You're going to break it in probably the next week. So just know that that's coming. Okay? Know that that is happening. But contrary to kind of popular opinion on that, I think that the practice of making New Year's resolutions is really good. I don't think the fact that we break them is a sign that we are doing the wrong thing. I think that the reason we break our resolutions is in the end our resolutions are often too shallow. Because we think and what we're looking for is how can this year be a year where I really have joy, I really have abundance, I really have purpose, I really have meaning in my life, I really have peace in my heart. I'm going to exercise more and eat healthier. Now, I know that there are a number of folks who are very healthy here. You exercise more than me. I know that there's physicians here. And I want all of you to know I am not trying to get down on exercising and getting healthier. But on its own, it will not revolutionize your life. It, it, I'm telling you, I'm being serious. It's not going to. And so when that's what I, we put our hopes in, that's what this year is going to be for me, it's no wonder we break it. What we need to be doing each and every year is asking ourselves the deeper question of what is God's call upon my life? How do I encounter God more? How do I experience God more? And as I experience him and want to participate more fully, I want to be healthy. I want to be alive. I want to do these things. But we look at the symptoms and we think that's what is going to make this year better for me. And instead, every year we need to be asking the deeper question, how do I find meaning in my existence? And that doesn't come through these kind of superficial tweaks and modifications we make. It comes through an encounter with the divine, with the holy, with the living God that is in our world and in our lives, whose call and joy and purpose are available to all of us. 
And so my hope is that you don't just get busier this year with stuff and more activities, even church activities. You can build your life up with more and more and more church activities. And if all it is is another activity to cross off your list, it too will feel stressful and like a burden. What we want is an encounter with God. And for that encounter to then shape the decisions we make. And as you think about that, that encounter with God this year, what I want to encourage you from in the scripture passage today is that we all need to pay more attention to how we're called to go fishing. And to get into that, we're going to bring the scripture passage up here from our text from today, from Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I'm going to ask Derek, if you have a Bible, you might want to follow along with it. I'm going to ask Derek to kind of keep this text up as we talk through today, because we're going to really build verse by verse um, through these 11 verses to understand the call of God on each of our lives. And I want to have the text up here so we can follow along with it, okay? This is what it says, Luke 5, 1 through 11. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we've worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching people. And when they had brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask this day that you would speak to us all, no matter who we are or how we walk in here, what questions, what doubts, what hopes lie in our life. Speak to us today. May we hear your divine voice and call upon our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So one of the things we see here in this passage from the very opening scriptures is that Simon, who we know as Peter, Simon Peter, Simon seems like a really great guy, doesn't he? I mean, you have to think about this for a minute because uh, Simon Peter at the beginning of this text has been out fishing all night long, all night, okay, from dusk till dawn, and he's a professional fisherman, and that is back-breaking work. He's been leading two boat crews that are out there of fishermen. They are fishing all night, and they fish at night because the, the temperatures were cooler, and the fish would rise in the Sea of Galilee, and you had a better chance of catching them. But after hours and hours and hours and hours of back-breaking work, they come in to start the day exhausted and having no fish. But as they come in, this guy shows up that none of them know and says, hey, how would you like to take me for a boat ride? Now, Simon might be a much better human being than I am. He probably is. But if I had been out and was aching and tired and had no fish to show for it and was in despair, the last thing I'd want to do is have a stranger come up and go, do you want to give me a boat ride? And go, yeah, that sounds great. I'd love to go back out on the water for just a little while. And then he does, though. Simon seems like this great guy. He rows him back out. Now, why does Jesus ask this? You ever, when you read this text, why does he say, will you take me out in your boat? 
Well, it's actually a really interesting thing. What's happened is this is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. He's in these little rural towns all around the Sea of Galilee. But as his ministry is growing, as his teaching is growing, folks are coming from the different villages because they want to be close to Jesus. They want to hear from Jesus. They want to encounter him and experience him like we're talking about here. And so when they do, the crowds start getting larger and larger and larger. And Jesus did not have microphones, okay? It didn't exist at the time. It's one thing when you're teaching 10 people without a microphone. It's another thing when you're teaching 100 people without a microphone. So what most scholars believe is that Jesus had Simon take him out in this boat because on the Sea of Galilee, there are these coves, these places where the water sort of is dug into the earth. And many of these coves are very steep hills and cliffs that go down into the water. And so it serves like an amphitheater. Okay, And so what happened is, is Jesus could be heard by the crowd if he went out into the middle of the amphitheater and the acoustics, uh, acoustics were good and the people would be sitting all along the hills and cliffs and they could hear him. Jesus is solving a logistical problem here by going out on Simon's boat. But Simon seems like this great guy and takes him. Then when Jesus is finished teaching, Simon again shows that he seems like a really good guy because when he's done, and as some of you know, those of us who are in a teaching and preaching ministry, sometimes we can take longer than maybe we should. Sometimes we can go on a bit in what we're doing. I'm not saying Jesus did that, but maybe he did. Maybe there were a couple of times where Simon's tired and going, I think he's done. And it's like, nope, he's going to keep going, right? And he stays out there. And then after all of that time, after his teaching is done, Jesus then turns to Simon and starts telling him how to do his job as a fisherman which all of us love in our professions when someone who doesn't know what they're talking about comes and tells us how to do what we do, right? I, I have so much uh, sympathy for a football or a basketball coach in a school like UT or Texas A&M or anywhere else because everyone in the community is a better football coach than Tom Herman when the Longhorns lose. Everybody is better at coaching the Longhorns than Tom Herman is. And everyone's better than Shaka Smart at being a basketball coach, right? Right? Okay. I know there are a lot of you that are better pastors than I am. And, you, and, you know, and I, again, you get the feedback, right? It's like, here's what you should be doing. It's like, well, maybe I should, right? And so Simon has this maturity where when Jesus says, here's how you should go fish, now go out and cast your... G Simon doesn't look there and go, hey, stay in your lane. I'm the fisherman. You're the teacher or whatever. Simon says, okay. And once again, he rows out into the deep water and he throws his nets in. But in a surprising way, these nets that have been empty and should still be empty, they start coming back full of fish says in the text there that the ropes and the nets were straining because of the weight. And they, they didn't know if they were going to snap. And so Simon then calls the other boat out. And he says, you know, maybe between the two boats we can handle this weight. But as the fish are coming in, as the nets are coming in, and the weight is weighing down both these boats, it seems that they're both about to sink. As water is coming into these boats, then there is this unbelievable, unbelievable exchange between Peter and Jesus where it says that Peter then gets on his knees and says what seems kind of odd in the moment with the fish and the water and the sounds and the kind of chaos going along is that Peter kneels down in front of Jesus with water pouring into the boats and says, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. Go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. Now, it seems strange because Peter seemed like a great guy up until now. He's kind of been generous and patient in a way that I doubt that I would be. And yet, this is who are his first recorded words, uh, first recorded exchange with Jesus is he ends it by saying, go away from me, Lord, because I am a sinful man. 
Now, we're not going to get into all this today, but my bet is, as wonderful as you are, and as nice as you can be, if you knew you were face-to-face with a divine being, this is not a random thing to say. You would be aware of our unworthiness to stand in the presence of God. You would be aware of that, just like Peter is. And he says, go away from me, because I'm a sinful man. Now, here's what fascinates me that I want you to think about for a minute. Notice how Jesus doesn't respond to Peter, and therefore doesn't respond to you and I when we admit this. I'm a sinful person. First off, there's two things that Jesus does not do that are important to name. The first thing he doesn't do is he does not guilt or shame Simon Peter. Religious leaders, religious organizations are famous for taking moments like this and trying to use the guilt and the shame of these moments to try to manipulate people and change their behavior. It's not just Christianity, although Christians have done it through the centuries, and some of us in this room bear the scars of religious people who have taken guilt in our lives, guilt that we feel, sin that we feel, and tried to manipulate and change our behavior through it. It works in the short run to change the patterns of someone's life. I feel my sin, and I feel it, and this time I mean it. It's kind of, a, kind of an Ebenezer Scrooge sort of moment, right? It's like, do you feel the change you've created? Yes, I, I feel the change. I am a sinful person. Are you going to change your life? Yes, I mean it. This, this year I really mean it. I'm going to change. I'm going to be different, right? I can feel what's happening. Jesus could use this moment to try to curb and change Simon Peter's life by manipulating him through guilt and shame. You, I am a, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus could go, yes, you are. Feel it. Feel the weight of it. Feel the pain of it. And let that be a lesson to you about how you're supposed to live. As a religious teacher, we might anticipate Jesus doing that. Many people have done it in his name. It changes behavior for a moment, but it doesn't change a life over the long term. And Jesus, and it's important we see this, Jesus does not shame Peter when he admits he's guilty. And Jesus is not come into the world to bring you shame or guilt as well. But, and this is a big but, on the other end of the spectrum, he also doesn't contradict Peter. He doesn't sit there and go, what we would probably do and what our culture is much more likely to do, which is when Peter says, go away from him, I'm a sinful like, no, you're not, Peter. Don't say that about yourself. You need to love yourself, Peter. You need to love all parts of yourself. You need to just know how special you are and how wonderful you are and how amazing you are and all the things that are you are just incredible and beautiful and celebrate them. You be you, Peter. You be you and don't apologize to anybody about who you are because we want to affirm all that exists in your life. Jesus doesn't do that either. Any of it, of what I just did. And yet we live in a culture that that might be our natural response. There's a fascinating article I read recently by a professor of Christianity and theology at the University of Nottingham in the United Kingdom who teaches basic Christianity and basic religion to undergraduate students, 18 and 19-year-old college students. And what he has found over the years is that, number one, his students who are coming in, British students... Uh, don't really know anything about Christianity. Christianity for decades has been doing what it's now doing in the United States, which is just a decline of participation. And it's happened so long that now these 18 and 19-year-old college students are coming, taking this class going, Buddhism, Islam, Hinduism, Christianity? I'm curious about all of it. I don't know what any of it, like what's the difference? What is, they just don't know. 
The second thing he's found is that as he started teaching them about Christianity, he said that the students started agreeing. It's like, well, it's based on love, and it's like God came into the world, and God would pursue us. And he said, they're, they're nodding. Going, yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. Until they get to one basic doctrine. The doctrine that Peter is talking about here, that the moment he gets to the doctrine of sin, these college students are going, nope, I do not agree with that. Go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. No, I'm not. I'm pretty special. I don't only just believe about myself. I've been told I was special from when I was two months old by my parents every day, just how special and amazing I am. And I've been told by my teachers how special and amazing I am. And I've been told by my mentors how special and amazing I am. And so I agree with the concept of sin. But when it comes to my life, am I perfect? No. But I am really, 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 really special. And the idea that sin exists in my life is just something I just reject Christianity just needs to teach me some morality about how to be a nicer person. But that's what it's about. Friends, we have to understand what Peter's saying here because it's really critical to all of our being. Peter isn't beating himself up. He doesn't have a bad impression of himself. What he's doing when he says that I am a sinful man, he's admitting something that is true in all of our lives. Saying that we are sinful people living in a sinful world doesn't mean that we're just these awful people, that nothing good happens, that we're not capable of anything of worth. It's not saying that. But what saying that we are sinful people is, it's an admitting of the truth. And the truth is this, is that we are capable of great beauty and great ugliness in the span of five minutes. All of us are. We can be amazingly giving, loving, kind, sacrificial people, and then we can turn around 30 seconds later and be unbelievably self-centered and gossip about people and feel better because we've torn someone else down and all of that other stuff. And we all do it all the time. And that there is not a way we can discipline ourselves out of it. That's what is wrong with how we do New Year's resolutions. No, no, no. This year I'm going to be so kind... I'm going to be kind. I'm going to work at it. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to be giving. I'm going to be patient. I'm going to be so patient that you will not believe how patient I am because I succeed and I'm going to work at my patience. You will marvel at my patience this year and how patient and loving and kind and giving I am going to be because I succeed. That's what I do. I promise you, you will not keep that for 10 minutes. That's what Peter's saying. He's saying that as the Apostle Paul will write letter later that every single day I do what I know is wrong and I fail to do what I know is right every day. And there is not a system of guilt or discipline or, or tactics that can work my way towards God. Go away from me, Lord, Peter's saying. I am a sinner. He's not beating himself up. He is admitting the truth, but then he's opening himself up to what God's response is. And God's response is not to shame him or make him feel guilty. God's response is to give Peter a calling, a mission, a purpose in this world. Jesus' response to Peter is, I will now make you a fisher of people. You, Peter, have been uh, working at one certain job, and your outlook on life was, I'm going to be a good person and a moral person. I'm going to work as a fisherman. I'm going to provide for my family. I'm going to rinse and repeat every day, and at the end of my life, I'm going to be a really good person. And Jesus is saying to Peter, no, I want you to live for more than that. I want you to impact this world. I want creation to be different because you're here. I want you to be somebody that starts thinking in a more eternal sense. I want you to participate in the story that God is writing in this world. 
You, Peter, I love and want to give you a purpose for your life. C.S. Lewis writes and says that that is one of the greatest gifts God can give us. That what we mostly want for ourselves or our family or our children, we want them to be happy. Lewis says that they won't be a lot of the time. Because happiness is an emotion that is built on external circumstances going right. Lewis says what we want for our lives and what we should want for our children and grandchildren is not just happiness, but joy. And he says that joy is the presence of purpose. Knowing why I am here. Participating in what God is doing of truth and grace and love and reconciliation in this world. The things of the kingdom and becoming a part of that. Having that purpose, that is joy. And that's what's being offered to Simon Peter by God. Not shame and guilt and condemnation, but not just this, no, 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 how special are you? This sense of purpose that has been given by God into Simon Peter's life. And that's the life that you and I are called to have too. You were made to change this world. You were made to influence the people in your schools, the people where you live, the people where you work, the places where you play. You are to be a fisher of people like Simon Peter, to impact others with the love of God. Sent out from this place. That's what joy and life are about. One of the best fishermen I've ever known was a college student at Georgia Tech named Brent Louie. Brent was a freshman at Georgia Tech when I met him, and he was a rugby player. Now, rugby at Georgia Tech was pretty competitive. It was a club sport. They traveled and played at other schools. University of Texas has a club rugby team. Brent was a really good rugby player and played it for most of his life. And, and I know this is stereotypical, and I don't like stereotypes very much, but we're going to make it today. Rugby playing players live in a rough and tumble world. They party pretty hard. They live a rugby lifestyle. Most of them don't wake up every morning with the words of amazing grace flowing from their lips. I feel, I feel like that's a fair generalization to make. And I'm not saying all of them, but it's a rough and tumble world. My wife is a rugby fan. In Wales, where she is from, rugby is the sport. And they're tough guys. I mean, I'm a tough guy, but they're really tough guys, right? They are like really tough guys. And women. Women are playing internationally, and they are really tough as well. I mean, they're amazing. Brent, his freshman year, was having fun. That's what I'm doing. I'm here to have college. I'm here to have fun. But like most of us, Brent's fun wasn't actually as fun as he was making it out to be. And then one day, Brent came to the realization that Simon Peter comes to here, which is that I am a sinful person. And that the decisions that I've been making are not the decisions that bring me joy, not bring me fulfillment, not bring me peace. And Brent Louis encountered Jesus as a freshman. He didn't, he didn't get condemned for his decisions. He didn't have the moral, religious people come down on him, but he wasn't also just told everything was okay. He encountered Jesus, the love of God. He was overwhelmed by the love and grace of God as he realized he needed it in his life. But then his question became, what do I do as a rugby player, as a minority of one that is following Jesus on the rugby team at Georgia Tech? He thought about maybe I should quit because I just need to get away and like purify and build a wall around myself so that I'm in the Christian bubble and I can be safe and I just don't want to do that. I'm going to kind of go over here. He also had people that came to him and was like, no, 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 you don't want to do that. What you want to do is become an evangelist to the rugby team. You want to like hear, and here are like the four steps to bringing Jesus to the rugby team at Georgia Tech. And if you follow this formula, they're all going to be, and he looked at it and he's like, oh, that doesn't feel right either. I don't want to do that. I don't think it's going to work and I don't like it. And I don't agree with it. And what Brent came to was the idea that he wanted to be somebody who pursued the guys on his team with the love that God was showing to him. 
that he wanted to be intentional, every interaction he had with the team, to love them in intentional ways, the way that he felt like God's grace was showing up in his life. And he did that. He started looking for the people on the team that felt like they were away from home and were lonely and homesick, and he started making certain that they were invited to team events. He started looking and inviting and making sure the freshmen were included in what the upperclassmen were doing. He changed some of the rituals that were really difficult that the younger players had to go through um, to, to, to relieve the, the stress and the pressure and the hazing that came along with that. Brent started uh, loving and reaching out and texting to and praying for the guys on his rugby team. And he just kept saying, just pray for me that I can reflect God's love. I want to reflect God's love. I want to reflect God's love. Over the months and over the years that I knew Brent, he had numerous students and rugby players that started coming to church with him. And at the end of his senior year, Brent Louie had led four different rugby players on the team to Christianity. And every one of the players loved him. They unanimously, as junior and senior year, elected him captain of the team because of the way he loved and intentionally reached out. Brent changed the culture of the rugby team. He changed the lives. God used him as a fisherman to change the lives of people. One of those rugby players that came to faith for the last 15 years has been a missionary in China. The ripple effects of one rugby player at Georgia Tech taking seriously that I want to be sent to these guys and just love them well and pursue them well, that that's what I want to do. It has changed the world in which you and I live. And Brent is now married with kids working for Capital One in Richmond, Virginia, and that's still the way he goes to work every day. How do I reflect the love and grace of God for a broken, sinful person like me? How do I reflect those values to the people around me? When Brent graduated, I said to him, I said, man, I have never seen someone with the gift of evangelism like you have. And he was like, no, that's not what I've tried to do. I've not tried to evangelize them. I've tried to love them. I've tried to love them really well and really consistently. That the three arguments of why Jesus is real, if I had gone in there with that, would just shut the walls down of those guys. But in then reflecting and talking about my faith and the love that God had given to me, I'm not doing evangelism. I just want to love those guys really well. Now, you may not know everything there is about apologetics. You may not know how to translate Greek and Hebrew. You may not know how Augustine's City of God should be read and the implications of the arguments that are in there. But you can do that. You can love people well. You can intentionally think daily about who God is sending you to wherever you live, work, and play and make up your mind that you will pursue them, reflect God's love, and be an embodiment of Christ's presence in their lives. And they will notice. You are called to live in this world with purpose, to influence those around you. But the way that it happens is by reflecting God's love for a broken, sinful person like you, for an unbelievably broken and selfish person like me, that God could love me and showers me with grace. And then say, how can I live that out in the presence of somebody else? You can do that. And if you do, not only will you see a different world this time next year, but you will be different as well. May we be fishers of people in 2019. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would be with us and meet us and encounter us and change us. Shower us all today, not with guilt, not with just blind affirmation, but shower us 
with your love and grace, that we might accept it and revel in it, that your love might sweep us off our feet, and that we might reflect that to whoever it is this week with whom we will live, work, and play. We pray to be fishers of people this week and always. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.